If you live in the United States of America, you've almost certainly heard about or watched the clips of what happened on January 6, 2021. What would later be called the insurrection. I want to warn our viewers that what we're about to see, this video, is very hard to watch. This was the horrifying scene on Wednesday inside an entrance on the west side of the Capitol. At one point, a rioter tries to pry the gas mask off an officer's face. Buildup of the last five years spill out onto yep. the Capitol steps. We love Trump. We love Trump. We love Trump. We love Trump. The minutes of that day would be picked apart and prodded at by the public and journalists and Congress. I mean, at this point, it's been more than two years. And yet we still don't fully understand how a peaceful transfer of power turned into the first breach of the U.S. Capitol in over two centuries. And there are still some key unanswered questions. Like, what was the president's plan? Did he really try to join the march to the Capitol? And how much did security officials know before that day? There's an agency that was very close to former President Donald Trump on that day. The Secret Service. Secret Service agents were both at the Capitol with Vice President Mike Pence and with Trump on that day. Records from the agency could clear up whether there was knowledge of a potential for violence that day and what, if anything, was done to mitigate it. The problem is, text messages among the agents and senior officials in the agency from January 6th are missing. The Secret Service wiped their cell phones. The January 6th committee spotlight tonight is on the Secret Service and how potentially pivotal text messages between agents on January 5th and 6th, the day of the attack, disappeared. The communications could be key. The agency said that these texts in question were deleted as part of a device replacement program. But the inspector general says that the deletions occurred only after his office requested that the messages were sent both a day before and on January 6th, which was Insurrection Day. So who is telling the truth here? And that's, I think, the question is on everybody's mind. So, who is this inspector general, and how is he connected to the Secret Service and January 6th? He's a watchdog inside the federal government charged with keeping the Department of Homeland Security accountable. He's probably one of the most powerful guys you've never heard of. But what happens when this watchdog isn't doing his job? This is the guy running the watchdog shop, but he doesn't want to raise red flags when clearly they're warranted. I remember standing in our living room in my uniform, and I'm trying to tell him I have to get out of there, they're going to kill me. I didn't even know how to blow the whistle back then. I said, I don't even believe in what we do anymore. It's a cover-up. Joseph Kafari is giving cover to abusive agents within the ranks. He's the watchdog yeah. who didn't bark over and over. There's enough smoke here to know that there's a fire burning somewhere. This is a podcast about finding the truth and holding people accountable. 
which is essentially, and not coincidentally, the work of an inspector general. I'm Maren Macklis, and from the Project on Government Oversight, this is Bad Watchdog. We're going to circle back to January 6th in a little bit, but before we do, I want to explain what an inspector general is, because I think it's really important to understand. Most big cabinet agencies have this watchdog office, the Department of Justice, of Defense, of Labor. But for all of the power that they hold, these watchdogs are some of the least known people in the government. You may not be familiar with our work here at the Project on Government Oversight, or POGO, as we call ourselves, but being that these watchdogs provide government oversight, and we literally have the words government oversight in our name, you could guess that we're pretty big fans of Inspectors General. Okay. I I think we're in business. I'm going to be recording right now. Okay? All right. Okay. It's recording. Gordon Hadell is incredibly respected within this community. He served under both Democratic and Republican presidents. And we'll be coming back to Gordon a lot throughout this series because of his expertise. I mean, inspectors general is one of the most important jobs, positions in our government because it protects the taxpayer, it protects the voter, it provides truth to protect our democracy. How how can the average person kind of understand what an IG is supposed to do and who do they even report to? IGs play a critical role in our democracy by exposing government waste, fraud, and abuse and seeking to make the government more effective, efficient, and honest. In the large federal agencies, the IG is appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate They promote economy, efficiency, and effectiveness, and inform Congress about problems in the administration of government programs and services. Today, inspectors general fill a void that occurs when our system of checks and balances is not working. My background is in investigative journalism. So when I came across the researcher job at POCO, I jumped at the opportunity. I thought, hey, this is right up my alley. I get to investigate the federal government for abuse of power and corruption and expose systemic cracks. I'd be able to hold the bad guys accountable, you know? But To be completely honest, at the time, I didn't fully realize how crucial inspectors general are and that they already exist within the federal government to shed light on these cracks in the system. Creating the inspector general system was a really was a rather dramatic change to the internal oversight structure. Um, But frankly, I think it was a stroke of genius. Liz Hempowitz leads the policy initiative here at POGO. And if you couldn't already tell, Liz is very passionate about accountability and oversight and inspectors general. 
We've got inspectors general that are, you know, across the board, generally resulting in huge savings to the agencies, even when not all of their recommendations are enacted. Um, and, and yeah, like I said, stroke of genius. So the role of inspectors general actually goes back, I think, to 1978 by Congress when they passed the Inspector General Act. And what they did was create a system of overseers who work within but independent of federal agencies. According to Liz, a good watchdog is independent, thorough, and in search of the truth. They should be willing to take a hard look at the agency that houses them, even when it's uncomfortable, and especially in the face of political pressure. That's why their relationship with Congress is so important. They are required to report to Congress. This creates independence, and it creates a check on these federal agencies that might not otherwise exist. They believed, and this is one of my favorite quotes, that agencies had clearly failed to make sufficient and effective efforts to prevent and detect fraud, abuse, waste, and mismanagement in federal programs and expenditures. Because there's a natural tendency for an agency administrator to be protective of the programs that he administers. Like, duh. Just so we're clear, this is a big job in general. But particularly, the Department of Homeland Security, or DHS, is the third largest cabinet department in the country. We've talked about inspectors general as kind of this uniform role, but by department, the responsibilities can change as far as like the amount of work that you have, like the amount of agencies that you're overseeing, the the size of those agencies. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? Yeah, absolutely. The way that the Department of Defense or the Department of Homeland Security interacts with the public, the work of these agencies um, has an incredible, um, an incredible opportunity to impact for a good or bad constitutional rights, um, human rights. The work of those inspectors general should acknowledge that. It shouldn't just be about cost savings at those agencies, particularly at the Department of Homeland Security. And trust me, we are going to get into some of these constitutional and human rights violations that some of these agencies have been involved in. But for now, let's focus on one of these agencies, which happens to be the Secret Service. And that brings us back to January 6th and what the Secret Service did or did not know on that day. There's probably about 300 uh, Proud Boys. They're marching eastbound. Inside the Capitol on January 6th, police are trying to maintain the crowd and stop them from getting onto the Senate floor. Secret Service agents are with Vice President Mike Pence, and they're trying to figure out how to get him out of there. If we lose, uh, any more time, we may lose the ability to to leave. So if we're going to leave, we need to do it now. They gained access to the second floor. The members of the BPT tell at this time were starting to fear for their own lives. Um, there were a lot of there was a lot of yelling. Um, it was disturbing. I don't like talking about it, but um, uh, there were calls to um, say goodbye to family members, so on and so forth. At the same time, a few miles away. 
Secret Service agents on President Trump's detail are fighting for his safety as well, except in this case, allegedly. It's to protect Trump from himself. The president just said he's marching to the Capitol. Cipollone said something to the effect of, please make sure we don't go up to the Capitol, Cassidy. Keep in touch with me. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement happen. This is Cassidy Hutchinson, a former top aide to the president's chief of staff, Mark Meadows. She made waves when she testified in front of the January 6th committee. When she speaks, you can tell she is careful and deliberate. But her testimony was shocking. Bobby had relayed to him, we're going back to the West Wing. The president had very strong, a very angry response to that. Um, Tony described him as being irate. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel. And Mr. when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. I mean, when I was watching her testimony, my jaw dropped. Did she just say what I think she said? The president was grabbing the wheel and maybe even assaulting the U.S. Secret Service agents trying to protect him? It sounded so wild to me. I couldn't believe it. I and the rest of the world wanted to know, did this happen? And if so, is there proof? Communications within the Secret Service who was protecting the president and the vice president at the critical time on January 6th when the violence broke out, that's of utmost interest to the committee. So this is the moment where the Department of Homeland Security's IG steps into the spotlight. His name is Joseph Kafari. And on July 13th, 2022, he issues a shocking letter. He's notifying Congress that the Secret Service deleted their text messages. Last week, Homeland Security's Inspector General notified the committee that the Secret Service erased employees' text messages. The communications could be key to advancing testimony from former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson. I.G. Kafari was almost seen as a hero in this moment. My colleagues here at POGO, Nick Schwellenbach and Adam Zagrin, have investigated and broken several stories about Kafari over the last two years. You'll meet Adam later, but for now, here's Nick. One of the big flashpoints here has been the former Trump aide Cassidy Hutchinson's public testimony on June 28th where she alleged that Trump tried to take the steering wheel of the presidential SUV and turn it around towards the Capitol to join his supporters as they descended upon Congress's certification of the presidential election that day. And so when Kafari sent that July 13th letter, the next day it was reported for the first time by the press, and it led to a lot of laudatory coverage of, of Kafari. The letter from the watchdog reads, quote, 
I am writing to offer a briefing regarding ongoing records access issues we have been experiencing with the Department of Homeland Security. He goes on saying the Secret Service, quote, erased the text messages after OIG requested records of electronic communication, and that, quote, DHS personnel have repeatedly told OIG inspectors that they were not permitted to provide records directly to OIG, and that such records had to first undergo review by DHS attorneys. Kafari was calling out the Secret Service for deleting records after they had been requested, which I'm no law expert, but that seems like it should be illegal. And he was calling out DHS for stonewalling his investigators. Honestly, bravo, IG Kafari, let the truth prevail. The Department of Homeland Security Inspector General has directed the Secret Service to stop its internal investigations into what happened to text messages. The Inspector General feels that this effort could interfere with the Inspector General's own investigation into what happened to that agency's text messages. But it turns out, Kafari knew way more than he was letting on at the time. He had a bunch of briefings with Congress and congressional staff. That all changed when Pogo and the Washington Post first asked critical questions about the timing of that July 13th letter. Suddenly, Kafari's office stopped answering questions. New questions about the missing Secret Service text from around January 6th. According to multiple sources, the embattled Homeland Security Inspector General first learned of those missing messages more than a year before he then alerted the January 6th committee. Kafari had known that these messages were missing for more than a year. Pogo and other news outlets obtained a copy of the original letter to Congress, which was initially drafted back in April. As a side note, Nick will refer to this as the April 1st letter or the April 1st language. But to keep this simple, all you need to remember is that this is an earlier version of the letter that set off what would become the Secret Service text message scandal everyone is talking about. This version of the letter to Congress showed that career staff had known for quite a while that those text messages had been deleted and that they'd wanted to notify Congress back, well, in April. They've been trying to get those text messages since the spring of 2021. This letter went through IG's Office of Counsel, Office of Investigations, and Office of Inspections and Evaluations. All three offices signed off on this language. So there's widespread agreement by the rank and file within the IG's office that they needed to tell Congress about the Secret Service's stonewalling and deletion of texts. And it got killed off. Why on July 13th is Kafari now telling Congress? Instead of doing the right thing in a timely way on the merits of the issue, he killed it. It isn't until there's this bombshell testimony by Cassidy Hutchison that was like, oh, well, you know, maybe we should tell Congress. 
What was even more frustrating for OIG staff? It turns out not all parts of DHS are equipped to extract and recover text messages, but Kafari's office is. However, instead of helping, OIG leadership halted the effort to salvage digital communications back in February of 2022. There were different parts of DHS that were coming to the Inspector General's office, like the Federal Protective Service, and they said, hey, we don't have the technical expertise to extract these January 6th related texts. Can we get your help? Because the Inspector's General Office had these digital forensics experts in-house. The staff within Kafari's office wanted to help. At one point, the staff was even on the verge of extracting these text messages. This is in late February. The leadership of the Inspector's General Office said, no, stop. We don't want to help them even if it leads to a delay in getting these text messages. Very weird. Why would he do that? Why would he tell them? There's no, we have no explanation as of right now. Wow. Led to a lot of people scratching their heads inside of the watchdog office. The rank and file were on the precipice of extracting these crucial text messages, but were told to stop. Why wouldn't Kafari want to uncover these text messages and help Congress gain a clearer picture of what happened on January 6th? It just doesn't make sense. Another level to this is the delayed notification of Congress also meant that Congress lost many months. Had they learned about those missing texts, say, many months earlier, or even a month earlier, weeks earlier, Could that have made the difference in terms of eventually recovering these texts? There's a sort of a gap in the accountability record relating to January 6th. Will we be able to fill that gap? It's not clear. He seems to have flouted this Inspector General Act legal requirement that he keep Congress informed when there are access to records issues. So there are questions about his understanding of his role as a watchdog and what are the legal requirements you know, he needs to fulfill. Nick wasn't the only one noticing how Kafari's actions were completely ignoring his legal obligation to report to Congress. In fact, His investigations made it in front of some of the members of Congress Kafari should have been reporting to. There's been a lot of outrage. Representative Benny Thompson and Representative Carolyn Maloney, they've been outraged by this. They have sent a flurry of letters to Kafari demanding answers, asking why was there delayed notification to Congress? Why wasn't the April 1st language that was approved by the watchdog office's lawyers? to send to Congress? Why was that never sent in a timely way? Why was it there a directive not to help DHS components recover text messages? And Kafari has refused to send these officials to Congress and says, I can't answer any of these questions. We have an ongoing criminal probe and I'm not gonna tell you anything. We did reach out to Kafari's office to request an interview and received no response. And while we can't get inside his head, throughout this series, we are going to share some of the explanations he's given to Nick and Adam. 
as well as Congress. I can tell you that when it comes to the missing text messages from January 6th, no one has received a clear explanation. That's the thing about watchdogs. When they're good at their jobs, they protect the truth and protect our democracy. But what if they're bad? What happens if they hear about corruption or misconduct, and instead of investigating and fact-finding, they look the other way? What happens when it's not clear whether they're loyal to the truth or to the agencies and leaders they're charged with keeping accountable? In this podcast, we're going to delve into the story of one such watchdog, Joseph Kafari, and the story of my colleagues at Pogo who have uncovered how the decisions he's made in that role have had a massive impact across the agency and across the country. Next time. We learn how Nick and Adam started looking into Kafari, and we uncover how the decisions he made around January 6th aren't his most harmful. They're just the most recent. We examine a pattern in which time after time, the DHS watchdog refused to do his job. I must have talked to people for at least a total of eight or 10 hours before one of these individuals brought up the fact that Kafari rejected a proposal to review the use of force at Lafayette Square by the Secret Service. Jaw dropped, just seemed like such an obvious thing for an inspector's general office to do. At this point, it's kind of like, you just hear bang after bang. People are like crying, throwing up. It looks crazy. We're in a war zone. Seeing an increasingly heartbreaking situation unfold there in Del Rio. The next image might be tough to look at. I think the Del Rio incident is like a microcosm of how effective Border Patrol is at just waiting out a crisis, sort of sweeping something under the rug. That's next time on Bad Watchdog. Follow and subscribe to Bad Watchdog wherever you get your podcasts. Bad Watchdog is a production of investigations and research at the Project on Government Oversight. It's written, produced, and hosted by me, Marin Macklis, and based on investigations by Nick Schwellenbach and Adam Zagrin. Additional research by Julian McClure. Edited by Julia Delacroix and Brandon Brockmeyer. Fact-checking by Amaya Phillips and Neil Gordon. This episode was mixed by Natalie Jablonski. Our theme music was written and recorded by Will Wrigley. Pogo's Director of Investigations and Research is Brandon Brockmeyer. Pogo's Editorial Director is Julia Delacroix. Find out more about our work to investigate and improve the federal government at www.pogo.org.